0: all right all right all right welcome to the canvas ships podcast where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day i'm chris and i'm chris cervello the canvas ships podcast is sponsored by hii hii is a trusted Defense and Technologies partner, supporting all services in all domains, and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering the advantage.
1: Coming up, everyone talks about how big a Navy the United States needs. Right after that is how much would such a Navy cost? There is no better expert on the topic of what the U.S. would spend on its Navy than today's guest, Eric Labs of the Congressional Budget Office. Eric will join us for a deeper dive into his newly released analysis of the costs of the Navy's current shipbuilding plans. But first, a look at this week's Naval News.
0: More than half the U.S. Navy's carrier fleet remained underway during the past week. The deployed Gerald R. Ford CVN-78 carrier strike group continues on station in the eastern Mediterranean while the Dwight D. Eisenhower CVN-69 strike group transited the Suez Canal, November 4th, and is operating the Red Sea, along with the Bataan LHD-5 Amphibious Ready Group. In the Pacific, the Ronald Reagan CVN-76 and Carl Vinson CVN-70 strike groups came together for at least two days of combined operations in the Philippine Sea, November 6th and 7th, along with the Japanese light carrier Hayuga. In the U.S., non-deployed carriers George Washington CVN-73 on the East Coast and Nimitz CVN-68 the Roosevelt, CVN-71, and Abraham Lincoln, CVN-72 on the West Coast, have been underway on training operations.
1: Of the remaining three carriers in the U.S. fleet, Harry S. Truman, CVN-75, is in the back end of a year-long dry docking overhaul at Norfolk Naval Shipyard. George H.W. Bush, CVN-77, is undergoing a pier side availability overhaul at Norfolk Naval Station, and the John C. Stennis, CVN-74, remains in the midst of a major refueling overhaul at Newport News Shipbuilding in Virginia. While four carriers deployed at once and eight overall of the fleet's 11 flat tops are underway, the unusually high number is the result of a series of planned and individual scheduling situations and is not a specific response to current worldwide events. It also means that at some point in the future, as it was just a couple years ago, there might not be nearly that many carriers available for operations.
0: Another significant ship movement in the Mideast took place November 5th when the cruise missile special operations submarine USS Florida passed southbound through the Suez Canal to enter the Central Command Area of Responsibility. Florida has most recently been operating in Northern Europe. A photo of the sub passing through the canal was widely distributed by the Pentagon.
1: In the Russia-Ukraine war, a Ukrainian cruise missile apparently hit the new Russian Kirk class missile corvette, Askold. On November 4th, while the Russian warship was at Kurt's shipyard in the Russian-occupied eastern Crimea, the missile is thought to have been a French-built Scalp EG, or storm shadow weapon. Damage to the Askel, which only entered service a year ago, is thought to be significant.
0: USS Pinkney DDG-91, got underway from San Diego November 7th for sea trials following a significant modernization overhaul that included the first installation of the Surface Electronic Warfare Improvement Program, or CWIP, which includes SLQ-32V-7 variant of the widely used SLQ-32 electronic warfare system. The Block 3 CWIP work was done at GD NASCO in San Diego and involved significant structural additions to each side of the Pinckney's bridge superstructure that radically changed the ship's appearance, especially when seen from ahead. In addition to the far more powerful V-7 electronic warfare system, the structures, dubbed Chipmunk Cheeks by some, also contained cooling systems for the upgrades, which include an electronic attack capability.
1: And the new littoral combat ship USS Marinette, LCS-25, got underway from Cleveland, Ohio, November 4th after spending two weeks on the Lake Erie waterfront, while a strike closed the St. Lawrence Seaway, leading from the Great Lakes to the sea. The ship was at Quebec City on November 10th, headed eventually to her home port of Mayport, Florida.
0: And in other new ship news, a keel ceremony for the new towing, salvage, and rescue ship Billy Frank, TATS-11, is to be held November 14th in Mobile, Alabama, where it will become the first ship of the type to be built by Austell USA. And in new
1: aircraft news, albeit new U.S. Air Force aircraft news, the first B 21 Raider stealth bomber made its first flight November 10th, a ferry flight from Northrop Grumman's production facility in Palmdale, California, to Edwards Air Force Base for an extensive series of flight tests. The B 21, which outwardly looks little different from the B 2 Spirit bomber, will replace existing B 1 and B 2 bombers in the long range strike role and is intended to serve alongside the exceptionally venerable and long-serving B-52H Stratofortress, And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news.
0: Okay, now we're going to welcome back to the podcast Eric Labs, Senior Analyst for Naval Forces and Weapons at the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Good to have you on again, Dr. Labs.
2: Thank you, gentlemen. I, I appreciate being invited to come back. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, Eric, your most recent report is an annual effort to look at the cost implications of the U.S. Navy's shipbuilding plans. The current plan, of course, covers the fiscal years from 2024 through 2053, for which the Navy again proposes three alternative fleet plans, two of which is something that came out last year, two of which offer trade-offs between differing capabilities, but feature about the same price, currently about, I don't know, $33.6 billion a year. The third alternative Proposes getting more capability by spending another fifty to sixty-six billion per year. The that's roughly what the service proposed in, in its twenty twenty-three request. Oddly, everyone seems to want the third alternative with the most toys in it, but whether there's a will to pay for it—that's another question. So, what are the, some of the key points that you'd like to stress about your fiscal year twenty-four analysis over a year ago?
2: Well, I guess there's two things I want to start off with. One is that uh, the Navy has again, as you said, put out three shipbuilding plans in this one report when the uh, directive in the statute by Congress suggests that they should be putting out one shipbuilding plan. So one question I'll have for the 2025 budget cycles when the Navy says that their shipbuilding plan is going to be aligned in 2025 with uh, the National Defense Strategy, Will they go back to one shipbuilding plan, or will they still continue to do three? Because this problem with three plans continues to confuse people up in the Congress and outside in the broader naval analytic community. Uh, they they don't know what to make of it. Congress uses this uses these plans as, as uses the Navy shipbuilding plan as kind of headlights as to sort of how they should evaluate uh, where the Navy wants to go. And right now, they don't. The three plans does not is not clear what the Navy wants by offering these three plans all the time. So that's one point. The second point I want to offer is that as I was doing this analysis this year, which is, you know, the the Navy shipbuilding plan is required in law. The CBO evaluation of that plan was also required in the same law. As I was doing that evaluation this year, I was um, a little bit taken aback by the rather substantial cost increases in real terms. That means after adjusting for inflation that the 2024 plan has over the 2023 plan you look at the plans, if you compare them, they're pretty, I mean, 2023, 2024, alternative by alternative, they're very similar. They're by design. They were, They were. there wasn't going to be much change. The only real change you see in any of each of these plans is, as you move the window forward one year, you know, a DDGX comes in and the DDG51 drops out type thing. Uh, so the plans are very similar, but cost increases were in the neighborhood of 10% in real terms between 23 and 24. Um it, and that's in the Navy's cost, not just the CBO cost. My cost went up by that amount, but the Navy's cost also went up by that amount. So there's still a gap between us, but but costs are a lot higher.
0: is that this this is outpacing inflation, isn't it?
2: Yes, this is after adjusting for inflation. So I factor out inflation. These what you know a con an speak, and I'm not an economist, I just play one well on TV on occasion. Um, in economist speak, this is in real terms, or after adjusting, meaning after adjusting for inflation and removing the effects of inflation from these terms. So these are real cost increases. And here, the the the, the poster child or the most significant contributor here is submarines, uh, attack submarines, and uh, notably in particular. And we'll talk about boomers in a second. So attack submarines, their costs, the Navy's costs have increased in real terms from 2023 to 2024 in their shipbuilding plan by about 15%.
0: Where's that coming from?
2: So the Navy will tell you that it is, a lot of it is shipyard performance. And that, I, I think that's a fair point, is that we have moved, we've talked about this, I think in the past, and certainly a lot of other people are talking about this as the Navy has moved into the Columbia class program, if they moved into the Virginia class with VPM. BPM, um, the the stress that's being put on the shipbuilding industrial base is enormous you're going over a 10-year period from like building one virginia class submarine a year to the equivalent of five by 2026 and you just that was inevitably in my opinion that was inevitably going to lead to um you know uh, program delays cost increases and so forth and there's other factors going into that you know the pandemic and things like that did not help inflation that we saw uh over the past couple of years even though i'm adjusting for the effects of inflation there's you know kind of an overhang effect that has been affected i think the you know the real the real cost of the program um and so that's those are all these factors that are contributing you know contributing to so the, the cost increases in in the navy shipbuilding plans
0: one of the things that we've been looking at is the you know every everybody looks at the at, at the top builders So obviously, in submarines, the 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 prime for all all submarine programs, attack submarines, and uh, the Columbia class, is General Electric, uh, General Dynamics Electric Boat, GDEB. Um, They're the prime. Uh, Newport News is is a sub to them. Uh, No pun intended. But both classes, both both classes, both companies, are engaged in um, expanding their supplier base, and looking at other ways to mitigate some of the problems that they've been dealing with um are, are you seeing any effects of that Having, mean, i mean how do you look at the supplier base as a factor in that
2: well let me let me back up on one second so for the attack submarine programs um both newport news and and, and electric boat are primes they each trade they each build about half of the submarine and they each trade off um final assembly of those submarines now, when it comes to building the Columbia Ballistic Missile Submarine Program, uh, electric boat is definitely the prime. They're doing about 80 percent of that boat. And then Newport News is doing about 20 percent of, of, of that class. So then you're right. They've been trying to actually the, these uh, builders are doing a number of things to try to improve, improve performance and improve uh, the level of production that they need to get to achieve the shipbuilding goals that the Navy is interested in and the Congress is interested in. So they are, then the, first of all, the Navy is appropriating billions and billions of dollars for the submarine industrial base across a whole variety of areas to facilitate more uh, parts uh, manufacturers to you know, 80% of the attack submarine program has got sole source part suppliers. They were spending money to both increase the ability of those part suppliers to produce parts for more submarines, and to bring in other manufacturers into into production for uh, critical parts. So that's you know that's one example of sort of things that they're doing. Other things that they're doing is they're doing a lot of, they call it st- you know strategic outsourcing, or they call it you know federated shipbuilding. It's really outsourcing you're just you're, you're sending parts of the submarine to other builders like Austal in alabama to build submarine decks and, and things like that to help offload some of that work capacity that they just simply cannot achieve you know in 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 their respective yards
0: what's the effect of Aukus? i was at, i was at submarine league uh the annual symposium um a few days ago and major topic of discussion throughout is the Aukus program the 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 agreement between australia united kingdom and um, the u.s to produce attack submarines um and some of those some of the american submarines are going to come off the production line and go to australia uh we can't you know this depending on who you talk to and what party they're at and what point they're trying to make um let's say facts are elusive so you know people are trying to fashion this as it's totally not affordable it's completely undoable um actually some people have the opposite view the program says actually you know by the time we get five or six years from now and this is a long-term program this is not a program that says has immediate um, you know, australia is not going to get a submarine until 2028 for example but some people have fair fair amount of confidence that you know by 2028 things will be much more stable um what's your read on that and the effect i mean is, is there an effect on cost if one would think if production goes up, since we're building submarines not just for us now, we're 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 helping Australia, we're building submarines for Australia, and we're in on the on, on the program with the Brits, um, one might think that would be a factor in bringing costs down, if there's more out there. But that is is, is, is that is that happened? Do you have any sense of that is going to happen, or probably will never happen? Well,
2: we're obviously in the very still very early stages of the whole AUKUS program, and so the, the latest information that I have is that the first submarine to Would be a used submarine sold to Australia in 2032. The second would be a used one sold in 2035, and then there would be a new one off the production line, the Block Seven production line, when the Navy goes back to building what they call straight stick Virginians or Virginians without the BPM payload in 2038. And then whether they do three or five, you know, still is kind of still to be determined. And so, um, I mean, this, you know, that's that's an added to, to to build replacements for those submarines, those three submarines or those five submarines. Is an added additional challenge on the industrial base that means we have to increase our production even greater than what is already anticipated for virginia class plus columbia so if the navy says they want to get to two virginia class submarines being built every year and they're not doing that yet they're going to have to go higher still in addition to the columbia program
0: you see a particular block i mean a particular item in the industrial base and with and been producing whether they're attack submarines or boomers, is there one item that is a is 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 a, is, is a harbinger of cost for everybody else? For example, the engines. Um, Columbia has an entirely uh, new propulsion plant, reactors, combat systems, steel—the particular steel that these ships—is there? is there anything in there that 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 you should look at to really understand the cost of these boats?
2: Um, there's nothing specific that I can think of that gives me that kind of uh unique insight or unique window to it. What I'm paying more attention to right now is is two things. One is the in terms of the Virginia class is the ability of the Navy to sort of um, just get a whole bunch of parts produced that they need to make sure that they can maintain the existing Virginia class submarines as well as then, you know, fuel or, 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 or feed the new production class line. But even more important in my mind is the workforces at the shipbuilding yards. So are people like Newport News and and Electric Boat are they meeting their hiring goals? Are they meeting their uh, retention goals for the workforce? Because this is all coming down to the fact that they have to increase their workforces substantially to be able to achieve this higher production level of work. And are they go- are they going to do that? Are they going to meet those goals? Are they going to be able to retain the, retain the people that they need to sort of do all this work? And you know through the through COVID and through even up until last year um, there was didn't seem like there was a whole lot of um, optimism to be found in that sector. You talked to the recruiting people at these shipyards and they were pretty unhappy people because it was, it was, it's it's an enormous challenge to do the hiring that they need to do. Now, this past year, uh, Electric Boat has exceeded their hiring goals for for new workers and Newport News met their hiring goal for new workers. So that's a good sign. Uh, The efforts that are being spent on to recruit and train people is a good sign. But they're still falling substantially short of their retention goals. So attrition has been much higher than they want. And that's a problem because you hire new people, they're green, they don't know a whole lot. Of, they don't know a whole lot. So if you're losing people as they start to gain experience, that just continues to perpetuate the problem of of higher costs for the submarines, longer build times, and makes the challenge of getting to those higher production levels all that much greater.
1: Eric, we have a wide uh, variety of listeners. Um, some are very much uh, attuned to this process, both you know the Navy turning their report in, and then CBO and other groups looking at it and finding areas where maybe there's more analysis that that's needed. But for those that um, that maybe aren't as familiar. Just sort of at a very basic level, because um, this is not new, why typically um, are is there a delta between what the Navy provides and what an organization like CBO finds in these reports? Because, I mean, it is pretty consistent. The Navy tends to provide a rosier uh, assessment and CBO tends to sort of find fault with that year over year. Why is that For for maybe the uninitiated in the crowd?
2: Uh, there's there's two real big reasons for that one is sort of how we treat cost growth above uh, gross domestic product inflation so we factor out inflation but the shipbuilding industry for the past 30 40 years has generally seen higher inflation over the over GDP inflation um, pretty much almost every year over that entire time period and so the question is is do you just sort of factor that out as factoring out inflation, or do you not? Well, CBO's approach to it in shipbuilding, as well as many other areas where we provide cost mm-hmm. estimates, is to treat that difference between GDP inflation and shipbuilding inflation as real growth. It is real growth that must be accounted for within the program, because otherwise it represents loss of buying power. So you have to factor that into, I factor that into my cost estimates. So that's one big component of it. Another big component of it is that in, in many of the major Uh, shipbuilding programs for example you like about half the costs of the uh, of the navy shipbuilding plan are coming down to the the next generation destroyer called the ssnx and then the next generation uh, next generation destroyer called the ddgx and the next generation attack submarine called the ssnx um you know there's different assumptions and different cost estimates for those programs which are going to be built in the 2030s and beyond different assumptions that go into like i had to figure out well what is an ssnx going to look like and i based on what the Navy said, I, you know, did a calculation about how big the submarine is going to be and the capabilities it's going to have. And it's going to look like a bigger, you know, bigger sea wolf with some missile tubes. So I use historical cost estimates and I sort of, you know, take it from there. DDGX is a really good example of where I think the Navy is just not being realistic in its cost estimate at this stage. You know, what they say, it's going to be a 13 and a half thousand ton ship, but it's only going to cost so it's going to be 40% bigger than the DDG-51, but it's only going to cost 14% more than the DDG-51. I don't think that is realistic. That sounds like a replay replay to me of the DDG-1000 program where they made made a similar argument back then with similar dimensions where it's going to be 15,000 tons more, but it wasn't going to cost that much more than the 51s at the time. That didn't turn out to be true. Cost grew in that chip by 45%, and that's not... That's factoring out the effects of sort of reducing the program down to three ships. You're still talking about the lead ship program there. The Navy has a story as to why they think that might not be the case. And we can go into that if you want, but um, I'm not persuaded by it.
1: So rhetorically, the Navy has talked a lot about um, getting to a uh, a larger number of unmanned uh, ships, right? But yet the shipbuilding plan didn't really account for that. Um, and so in order to have a really good understanding or a really good, um, deep dive into, um, the, you know, a future shipbuilding plan, do you really have to look at both or are you able, as you did in this report to kind of segment out just the battle force ships, just the man ships, um, what would be the benefit of being able to analyze both, uh, if you had that opportunity?
2: Well, uh, one of the things that I actually do in this report that I think is one of the value addeds I provide to the Congress is when the Navy puts out its report, um, they don't spend a lot of time talking about costs other than at a very macro level. You know, they don't get into the sort of annual averages and things like that. They used to. They don't do that anymore. But you have charts in there, but they don't tell you what, you know, they don't put specifics on those charts in the sense that you have to kind of eyeball it. Um But there's a whole bunch of other costs that are associated with the shipbuilding budget that are not part of new ship construction, the part that the Navy writes about. And I do provide estimates for that. And in that, those estimates, I do include um, uh, uh, unmanned systems that would be that I think would be purchased under the SCN budget. So my estimates did include uh, the large, you know, unmanned surface vessel and how many they would buy under the different alternatives as part of the estimates. I also then add those costs to the Navy's plan. So I'm doing an apples to apples comparison, but the Navy doesn't provide estimates on that, although they did provide me uh, you know, some schedules of, of, of production of those particular platforms. But other ones like undersea or maybe the medium SUV that people talk about, they would be purchased under other shipbuilding uh, but, uh, accounts or uh, other uh, procurement accounts. And those were not included in, in this analysis in this year.
1: Lastly what i found um to be particularly interesting it was the measures of capability um that that you go into you, you know uh breaking down um and and looking at the not only the difference in what the um, measure of hulls would be uh, um, among the three plans, but the the measure of capability. Can you talk a little bit about that, and maybe anything that stuck out to you? Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I've I've read this a couple times, and I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around. I mean, beyond the obvious that you know more ships would have more cells, but um, you, you know, is there? Is there an argument to be made that um, you, you know the navy that that the hulls by themselves doesn't tell the whole uh, story?
0: Well, I, I
2: think I think that's right. I think a ship count is is a useful measure, but it is very much an incomplete and an and an imperfect measure of sort of the capability of the navy. In, in political discussions on the Hill over the future of the navy, it becomes an easy shorthand. But I don't think there are many people out there either on the Hill or in any broader naval community inside the Navy or outside the Navy, who thinks that, well, yeah, well, ship count and all that matters, and just buy 300 LCSs and then you've got your 300 ship Navy. No one thinks that way. It's it's a shorthand for having a balanced lead, for having the set of capabilities the Navy needs in their toolkit. Now, the Navy has not been doing a very good job over the years and sort of representing what that actually means uh, in terms of what the what the kind of capabilities that the, that the fleet can deliver in the event that it was, it was do so. So in the 2022 shipbuilding plan, which was just a kind of a one pager type thing, the Navy didn't have any long term projections in there. I started basing on what they were using as their fork goals, like force goals. I said, well, this is kind of the implications for the fleet if we achieve these force goals for these various measures of capability. And I would like to think this might be um, uh, taking too much credit, but I would like to think that the Navy saw that and sort of started incorporating those measures into their shipbuilding report in 2023 for the first time, and then they repeated it in 2024. I took it a little bit step further because I wanted to roll up of the total, thos- total missile cells in the fleet. And then I wanted a measure of, of, That distributed part, you know, VLS cells can be a proxy for lethality, but the number of ships that are capable of shooting, uh, you know, land attack or anti-ship missiles is in some ways a measure of the distributed part of that, the distributed part of distributed lethality. And so I included the measure in there and how that changes over time. And the Navy shipbuilding plans fare well in that regard, that they will put a lot more missiles on a lot more ships over time, although albeit not too much over the next five to 10 years. And one thing the navy does not do a very good job of and I'm not can't claim that I did a great job with it either is sort of explaining well you've got these three plans you've got these measures of capability but you know what does it mean how should the congress use that what are what are the you know what are the trade-offs can you can can you can you glean from that and that's a little bit hard to do we can talk a little bit about that more if you want but it's it's not something that was discussed much in either report
1: yeah let's do that cuz that's that was going to be my follow up is is that you know those of us that kind of grew up in this, you you were used to either you had a shipbuilding plan or you didn't. And then when the three different coas went over, I mean, I, I think that left some people scratching their head. I, I think there are some inside the Navy that said, "Hey, I mean, it, this this is meant to give a range of you, you know, sort of high, medium, and low, and and you know, wh- you know, different options that the Congress and DOD could uh, um, go after." There are others that felt you know, hey, this is just a punt, right? I mean, this is just a, you know, they're not necessarily willing to stake a claim to it. Y- your thoughts on, on that, if, if you don't mind sharing them, and, and maybe the utility of um, whether it's this group of COAs or, or in the future, other groups. I mean, is this the, d- does providing options help, um, or is it um, unhelpful for both the service and for the, the stakeholders uh, up on the Hill?
2: Well, you mean in terms of when you say options, you mean the different plans or you mean sort of the metrics of capability?
1: I'm talking about, I'm sorry, the the different plans.
2: Um, I, I think for the purposes of the uh, of the oversight of the Navy's budget, for the way the Congress wants to think about and plan for a future Navy, um, I want to be careful. I'm not in positions of making recommendations, but I think the Navy would probably be better served, certainly on Capitol Hill in the oversight process to come up with one plan and say, this is our shipbuilding plan. This is what we think we need. This is what we think we need, where we need to go. Because when they don't do that, and, and the law really does seem to imply that the navy, that the Congress is looking for one plan, not three alternatives, and then not given much guidance as what you do with these three alternatives. When they do that, the Congress is evaluating the quality of the Navy's program. And by quality, I mean, you know, does it all adhere together or not? And so, you know, in the oversight process they're asking questions like you know what is the force goal what is the service life of the ships that are being purchased what is the maintenance and modernization program can it achieve that service life what's the production rate of new ships what are the costs and when when we're at a state right now where the congress doesn't know what the force goal is because the navy has said that they're going to be updating their force goal and they don't or if they do it's classified and they can't really be shared in any details they don't know what the service life of ships are because sometimes we're extending service lives of ships, or sometimes we're throwing ships away after less than ten years of service. It's not it, it's not confident that even if the service life was clear, that the Navy's maintenance infrastructure, uh, industrial base, can actually do what is needed to meet that service life. If you know, it doesn't think that the production rates you know have the sufficient have the sufficiency or the stability to achieve what it you know what, what the Navy wants to do with that and now with three alternatives now it even has to guess at what the long-term shipbuilding plan is supposed to be um so you know because dod keeps submitting three plans and you know not one now the navy was a little better in 2024 in the sense that it didn't do much in the it didn't change anything in the first five years and it changed very little if anything in the first 10 years so that does give at least one plan for the first 10 year but if congress is trying to think well are we going to need a lot of SSNXs? Are we going to live in a lot of DDGXs? And, and and trying to think about, you know, resources are going to be finite and these are these are going to be expensive ships. Giving more guidance as to sort of what the Navy needs and why it needs that many and what those forces are supposed to achieve um, would be something that I think would be helpful in, in, in future versions of this or in, certainly in discussions that Navy officials have with the Congress on the Hill.
0: This, this is sort of where I, I really miss Elaine Luria and uh you know for a while there she was really pinging on people to tell me what what it is you want to do what is your navy for what is your strategy what do you need to carry out that strategy and the navy never really is can explain that they're not very good at explaining that to themselves uh, much less congress much less americans um so this this makes forecasting to me anyway Forecasting a fleet cost and what's happening beyond the next two, three, three, five years, um, pretty much a crapshoot uh, depends on policy. So the last the last two budgets um, seem to be driven by a uh, an overarching requirement that says if it's not something we can use right away in a kinetic involvement between China invading Taiwan, then we're not terribly interested. So it's got to have high firepower and be something we're going to throw right in there right away um that discounts the 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 presence mission it discounts expeditionary missions discounts a lot of things other than pretty close to all-out war um and yet that's what the navy is engaged in on almost a, on every hour of every day um so you know that's that's a priority now we have this uh you know strategic pause on lpd amphibious transport dock procurement because we're looking for, nominally, because they, they, they want to look for a lower-cost alternative, the Marines are adamantly against that, have been, have been against that the entire time. It's their, you know, they're, they're the people doing that job. Um, and certainly a strategic pause to look at costs never, ever resulted, I don't think there's any, any example where that resulted in better cost, cheaper costs, lower-cost alternatives. Inevitably, any pause means more money. Uh, it just drives costs up, so it's it's um, it's oxymoronic. But I would imagine, especially when you're trying to look down down the road, you know, you're forecasting thirty billion and more per year for twenty five years. Uh, yeah, we they don't even know what they're doing in two years. Um, and th- what they're doing now, what I just said, prioritizing for for a Taiwan invasion, is not what was going on three years ago the same Navy, same, an awful lot of the same people. Um, this this further complicates anything that you're talking about, wouldn't it?
2: I mean, yes, it does. I mean, you have, you have to sort of also consider, you know, the purpose of a 30-year shipbuilding plan. I mean, no one believes that a 30-year shipbuilding plan is going to be implemented as is, that the ships that are in that plan 15 years right. from now, when 15 years from now rolls around in 2030, you know, 2040, is what we're actually going to buy. The purpose of the plan is really to sort of give the Congress some headlights, to give them some understanding of of sort of what are the forces that the Navy thinks it needs, you know, writ large. What are the resources especially that are going to have to be required to implement that force? And that allows them to sort of either do one a number of things, sort of engage with the Navy and says, we're not sure that we think that you're on the right track. We need to talk about this more because, you know, when we look down the road, we don't like what we see. Or if they do like what they see, for example, they can get a sense of sort of what the resources are that are gonna be required to implement that, that kind of uh, approach that the Navy is proposing. Um, or if, the other thing it does is that all these accumulated year by year annual budget decisions show what the long-term implications of that, of those are on a downstream way. Like for example, if we had 30 year shipbuilding plans back in the, you know, 1990s, maybe people would have understood better that we were facing a, a decline in the attack submarine force, you know, in, in the 2020s. And Ron Rourke was writing his report that sort of showed that, but there was not something that was coming from the Navy and it was, CBO wasn't doing that kind of work at that time either. So um, in that sense, that's that's what it's for. And I think you're right, Chris, that you need to, a 30-year shipbuilding plan helps keep the focus on the long term at the same time that there's a lot of discussion in the current budget years on the short term. So that's another, I think, benefit of it that shipbuilding is very much a long game. So if you're not sort of at least looking down the road at least 15 years or more, and really it does have to be over a longer period of time, you're going to lose some important aspects of what's going on. And one of the examples, going back to Chris, what you said about like thinking, look at the metrics. You know, if you look at sort of the, the different plans for one thing is that the carrier force at the rate that we're buying carriers is inevitably going to decline over a long period of time. There's really not very much we can do about that. Um, And that's something that people need to be aware of. And it is shown by uh, this this kind of long-term analysis, so that if there are things that need to be done to sort of compensate for that, then actions can be taken to do that. Uh, Likewise, with one of the things that was kind of surprising coming out of this, and this goes on, this ties both together, the metrics, as well as with your, uh, uh, with your question on unmanned systems, is that one of the things that puzzled me about this is, you know, why were surface missile, missile cells pretty much the same under alternatives 1 and 2 when Alternative 2 was submarine-focused? If anything, submarine the Alternative 2 had more missile cells. Well, it's because and Alternative 2 was, being, was, being, was done by OSD CAPE. That was kind of their alternative under the same budget level. Well, it's because they bought substantially different numbers of large unmanned surface vessels with 32 VLS cells. The Navy bought 40 in alternative one. Cape bought 60 in alternative two. And that made all the difference in the world in terms of the metrics. And that's something that needs to be type of thing that should have been been explained better in the report and was not.
0: Let's talk about the, the, the lower end of the scale before we go. Um, and it's not even in the program yet. And that's the landing ship medium. It's a really small ship that um, the Marines nominally want to buy to uh, to, to, to support um, their new strategy in the Pacific. Um, I'm still not entirely sure what this boat is supposed to do. But in any case, it's an LSM, landing ship medium. It started off as about a $75 million a copy ship. It rapidly rose to $125. Uh, now people are talking $250 million a ship. Uh, we haven't even chosen a design yet, and haven't even chosen somebody to start building it yet. So we've already had um, what three times three three hundred percent cost growth, and it doesn't even exist yet. Um, at Harbinger's probably pretty poorly. Uh, what do you What do you think of that entire debate and the and 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 the way this is progressing?
2: Well, I want to I want to en- enrich that discussion a little bit further, Chris, because one of the one of the peculiarities I found in going from 2023 plan to 2024 plan is that the LSM costs, at least at that those moments in time, went down by quite a bit. So like the price that the Navy was proposing to pay in the under 2023 fit up and plan is substantially higher than what it was proposing to pay, what it's supposed to play in 2024 shipbuilding plan fit up. and by by a substantial amount. And and. It, and so the question is, is the Navy still, ha- and the Marine Corps has still not figured out exactly what this ship is going to look like and what it's going to do. Because now the latest data I've heard is that people, are, there were some people, some Navy people uh, in uniform who were telling me um, in an off the record type of situation, so I'm not going to attribute any names to it, that they think now maybe the costs are going to be closer to what I'm estimating, which is around 270 to 300 million for boat. But it, you're right. These these are real swags here because we don't know a lot of details about what the you know what this platform was going to look like, and costs can change substantially before we're done. We saw this with the Surtest ships. You know, the Navy was budgeting four hundred million for those. They discovered now that this is closer to an eight hundred million dollar ship. At least the lead ship is. Follow ones are going to be a lot more than the four hundred million are in the budget. But the budget wasn't updated in time to account for that change in reality. So. I, w- I guess the only thing I would say to that is that you're you're right, but at the same time, the LSMs, whether that's a 150 million dollar ship or whether that's a 300 million dollar ship, in the scheme of what the Navy is going to spend on ships over the next decade, which is in the neighborhood of a billion dollars, it's a pretty small amount of money. It's going to be a very small slice of the wedge uh, over the ship over the course of the over the course of the next thirty years.
1: We could do this all day as I continue to look, as you're talking, I'm I'm diving deeper into this report, but I think we've run out of time. Eric, thank you very much. We've been talking to Dr. Eric Labs of the Congressional Budget Office um, Eric, uh, you were last with us uh, in February of 2023. I hope you'll come back the next time that you have a report uh, or the next time that we have questions, which I'm sure will be uh, you know in, in any uh, any week now. But uh, we really appreciate your uh, help in uh, helping the audience understand uh, what is at times a complex issue.
2: Thank you for having me. I I appreciate the invitation and I've enjoyed the discussion and I look forward to other opportunities in the future as 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 you see fit.
1: Now is it. Now is it. You know what that sound is? It's time for Squawk Box. This week, Mr. Cavis talks about the
0: need to ask for more. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, I don't think it's any secret that when you listen to this podcast, you're listening to a couple of confirmed navalists. Mr. Savello and I believe in the value of a strong navy in war and in peace, both to win a war and to keep the peace, and for everything in between. It's a lesson that has rung down through history from ancient times. Armies have almost never brought long-term stability, but navies most certainly have. U.S. Navy officials have little choice other than to remain part of the political process in the Pentagon, in whatever presidential administration is in charge, and in testimony before a chronically politically charged Congress. Officials have to be careful how they couch things, mindful of the reactions of politicians, and keeping to strict rules about the federal acquisition process. But just about any analysis of the Navy's current and recent shipbuilding programs usually produces a common response, Why isn't the Pentagon doing more to support, maintain, and expand the nation's sea power? The primary peer competitor came to that conclusion some years back, that sea power was a prime requirement and that a major investment in a navy would pay significant dividends, and the Chinese navy is now, numerically, the world's largest navy. It's also increasingly becoming an instrument for political and power projection not just throughout the turbulent South China Sea, but increasingly worldwide. And what they've done, in many ways, has been to build a copy of the United States Navy at its peak. But it does not seem that here in the U.S., those in charge at the very top, regardless of the party or the administration, really get the value of sea power. The annual budget submission always seems to be for a Navy with one hand tied behind its back, making major investments in a handful of areas, but restrictive in most others. Now, do not get me wrong, I am most certainly not advocating for a blank check, and I hate wasting money and resources. But year in and year out, it seems the service could be asking for more and doing a better job inside the Pentagon of advocating for its needs. Congress certainly agrees. For all the messiness and downright ugliness of recent years, Dr. Labs points out that every year since 2014, the House and Senate have provided significantly more in shipbuilding funds than the Navy asked for. The sentiment on the Hill has been for quite some time, why don't you ask for more? That's across the aisles, across both houses, regardless of who's in the White House. Nobody wants to waste money, but clear majorities on Capitol Hill want to be doing more. And so, and I'm directing this at the White House and the top Pentagon leadership, as well as the Navy, why don't we ask for more? The clock is running.
1: Thanks, Chris. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support.
0: The Caverships Podcast, sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering the advantage.
1: Be sure to follow us at Kavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeart Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello.
0: And I'm Chris Cavas. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey.